So TJ, I have to ask you this. Okay. Because I don't think we talked about it in the Batman podcast at all, which is a sh- which is an absolute travesty. Who okay. are your favorite Batman villains? Give me give me Ooh. two or three in that top tier for you uh, of your favorites. Not necessarily best, but your favorites. Two or three. Um, favorites. I'd probably have to go. Uh, Mister Freeze. Okay. Definitely like top three. I don't know why I've always liked him. Mm-hmm. He's not like the coolest villain, like conceptually. I mean, he just shoots ice out. Ooh. But like, there's something about his backstory that's really cool to me. Yeah, I think he's one of my favorites. He's one or two. I, I switch him and Clayface around a lot, but he definitely has my favorite origin story of any villain. I think I think it's really yeah. cool. You know, he's trying to save his wife, who has yeah, that, that terminal. Always really cool. Yeah, has a terminal illness and uh, using the company's money, and the company's like, yo, you can't do that, and then shit goes crazy. And wh- what else, TJ? What, who would you say? Um, I'm looking at it a list right here so I don't forget any. Yeah. Um, I will say Man Bat is severely underrated because, like... Man Bat's a king. Man, Man Bat's Man king. Bat. He's... Because everyone's like, oh, he's literally just a Man Bat, like... There's nothing cool about him. Nah, he's he's super sick. So. He's awesome. Yeah, he's uh, underrated for sure. Uh, let's see. I'd have to say I like. Uh, oh, there's so many. Ah, definitely the Calendar Man. <laughs> oh my gosh! I cannot wait till I get to that. I can't wait till I get to that episode. I I mean, uh, I think he's in Long Halloween. If you read that, oh okay, I think he's actually kind of a decent part of that one. Hmm. Um, and the but I always liked Harley. Harley Quinn's cool. Yes, that's um, true. Yeah, so definitely top three, I'd say, mm-hmm. and then probably you can't go wrong with Joker. Yeah, I, that's... I, I, I want to pick someone who isn't Joker. <laughs> yeah. Grady and I, my roommate, we were having this conversation. <laughs> it's because no one wants to pick Joker because that's the obvious answer. That's like that's an obvious answer, you know. Oh, that's so basic, but no, it is a great answer because he obviously oh, it is. he is yeah. amazing. So oh, yeah, I want to I, I want to shine light on a different villain though. So right, right, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll steer away. Okay. Uh, I do like Scarecrow. Scarecrow is pretty cool. Mm. Yeah. Um. I think his just concept is really weird. It's really cool, but yeah, I like I mean, he. Um, again, well, I mean, really, all these Batman villains have great backstories, but he has a very interesting one with the whole, you know, um, creating that chemical thing. Okay, oh my god. Yeah, before this gets too weird, we can at least introduce the movie of the day that we're talking about—the movie of the episode, which is Spotlight. With Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, it's a stacked cast. Um, like Rachel McAdams, AKA the movie with like every Marvel star in it, <laughs> or people who are just tons of Marvel stars. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think I counted, and seven of the eight big actors in this movie are associated with Marvel. What about the guy from Mad Men? What is he in a Marvel thing? Which one's from Mad Men? Um, yeah, he's, um, he's, a 
Tony Stark's dad. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I think okay. the only one that I think the only one that isn't is Billy Kudrup, and he's in a DC movie. Okay, because he's in Watchmen. I think he's mm. I think he's Doctor Manhattan. Okay. Yeah, but everyone else is in a in a Marvel movie in some way. What about Brian Darcy James? Is he in one? He's in one scene of one, and it's just recently because he's he's in the first scene of Hawkeye because he's Kate Bishop's dad. Oh wow, this is this is going deep. Jeez. Yeah, and then the one guy who's the lawyer, he's in uh, First Avenger. Mm. Uh, we have Scriber. He's a uh, he's Sabretooth and Kingpin. Okay. Rachel McAdams is in Doctor Strange. Yeah. Michael Keaton's in Spider Man, and Mark Ruffalo is the Hulk. <laughs> okay. I <laughs> I don't know what to think anymore. My mind is kind of blown, but yeah, very cool. <laughs> All right. For the win. For the win. So it's directed by Tom McCarthy. I don't really know him from much. I looked. I at, just. I looked yeah. at his filmography, and there's nothing that. Oh, he's it. He stood out to me except for Pixels. <laughs> I don't think he directs like Pixels. That, he does not direct. Pixels. That's what I thought. Yeah, I. I, I haven't really heard any. of He's these. an actor in Pixels. Okay, well that's why. I heard of 2012 because that was a big thing, you know. Tw- oh, the world's gonna end 2012. Did he write that? Uh, he's also in. The, there's the Wire. He says he's an actor in the Wire. I don't know how big it is though. Oh my god, he helped write up. He did. Yeah. Oh well, that's and Christopher big. Robin. Oh. The more you know. Uh, million Dollar Arm. Uh. Hmm. Loudest Voice, which was big little miniseries. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. So too crazy big other than up in this, but... Right. He seems to be more so, of a... Low-key. Low-key kind of guy. He seems to have... Yeah. He seems to have written and produced more... Well, I don't know. Yeah, he's kind of just more of a, a low-key dude. But he made a great movie in Spotlight. One Best yeah. Picture... It was nominated for, and we'll talk about this for Pop Quiz Hot Shot, but he was, it was nominated for six Oscars, and it won two. So, you know, Mark Ruffalo was nominated, Rachel McAdams was nominated, and I guess we can get into this now, but I did, I was fine with none of them winning, the neither Same. of them winning the Oscar. I thought that it was definitely worth the nomination, but it wasn't one of those performances where you come to the conclusion, oh my, like why didn't they win that? They should have totally won that. No, it was definitely one. It definitely fit in that niche of yeah, nominate them, but are they worthy of winning it? Not so much. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I mean, there's some lot of there's a lot of good like performances that year. Mm-hmm. So. And, you know, I I keep saving some of this stuff for later, but we'll just get into it. The I love how none of the actors overpower each other. There's not one large looming star. It's not, you know, oh, it's Matt Damon, you know, as uh, I don't know, Mike Resendez or something, 
who I think that was he was going to be Mike Resendez. I, I think that's a trivia thing. But it's all very much there seem to all be equal with each other. There's no super, super big star at the time. They all are kind of level. You know, of course, Mark Ruffalo is the Hulk. But even so, he's not – he doesn't naturally stand out. He's he's very level with the, all of his co-stars, and I really like that because I think it works well with um, – Kind of like their their dynamic and um, leveling the the story almost and making the story really uh, shown over the story taking precedence over um, you know the actors, which is good yeah. considering what this what this film is about. Yeah, I thought that was that was one thing I did really like about. This one was like, it, yeah, like you said, it doesn't feel like a one man show. It feels like it feels like a team effort, and it's not just oh, Mark Ruffalo's doing his thing, and everyone else sits around for two hours. It's like everyone does their own little thing nicely and to the point. I thought that was it. It, it just it felt like something that would actually happen, other than like. Oh, one guy leads the whole investigation and cracks it all by himself. Like I feel like a lot of these movies would be. Yeah. TJ, before we continue on, what are your overall thoughts of this film? This is your first time watching it. This is my second time watching it. And the reason I brought it up is because I originally watched it for a class, uh, for it, my class, my journalism class. And I thought it was really good, and obviously it won Best Picture, so I think it was a perfect timing, you know. The Oscars are coming up on Sunday, tomorrow, and like I said, this won Best Picture, so it's perfect timing. What are your overall thoughts on the film? Did you have any expectations going in? What did you come out with? Explain. Go ahead. Um, I think this, I thought it was a pretty good movie. I... Uh, just in general, I've been in like this streak of like pretty good movies. And I think this like fit in really well. Um, so I, yeah, just like overall, I thought it was pretty well done. Like I said, I liked it. It was an interesting story. Uh, I think the cast is great. Um, I like that as a technical move, like technically, like, um, it's not anything to like. I don't think it's like the craziest movie ever made. Like, I, like, uh, I think like stuff like Mad Max and stuff like that that also came out that year. Definitely more of like the like crazy camera work that kind of thing. But I think that I don't. I didn't really care. And I didn't expect that from this movie. Um, but for what like it when it does keep trying to be like fancy and cool with that, it works. Um, and it's well written, well directed. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just overall pretty good. So you have seen some of the movies that it was nominated up with, against. Up against. Do you think this movie deserved Best Picture over those that you have seen? Ooh, Best Picture. Let's see. I've seen The Revenant, The Martian, which I haven't seen in years. Uh, Bridge of Spies, same boat, haven't seen that in years. And Fury Road. And I've seen like half of the big short. 
Um, ooh, that's hard. I mean, the spotlight or spotlight's pretty good. I spotlight is definitely in contention for the best one. So I think the three that immediately go to winning are Fury Road, The Revenant, and Spotlight. But I don't know. I, of course, really have no opinion, unfortunately, because I need to get my life together and watch these other movies. But from a journalism perspective, because that's how I watched it, because I I watched it for a journalism assignment and how accurate it was for investigation journalism, it did a fantastic job. I will say that. Oh, yeah. It had that vibe, and I was... It, it seemed like it, it knew what it was talking about, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite movies, Moneyball, it has a very similar shooting style, score, and the way both of these films develop are very similar. I, I noticed that right away. The, the cinematography is very minimal, very basic, but crisp, and the score is very... is prominent yet discreet it's mm-hmm. quite simple but it is still powerful especially you know with it, when they have those montages when they're getting stuff done you know finding the priests that have sick leave or one of those titles you know when the, when actually they were being moved because they abused children and stuff or or pauses or emotional pauses in the film is when that score which you thought and, and was very in the background starts to become prominent. And I thought they did a, a good job, a great job from that perspective. Oh yeah. Back, um, sorry, go ahead, TJ. Yeah. That was one thing. I thought that the score was really well done. Yes. Uh, it's, it's by the guy who did uh what are the rings? Howard mm. Shore. Okay. Uh, and I think he's, he's won an it, Oscar, correct? For Lord of the Rings. Probably. I think so. Because that one year they um, won a boatload of Oscars for oh, Return yeah. of the King. So I, I bet. I will double check that yeah. right now while you continue with what you were saying. But I bet he won an yeah. Oscar. But yeah. Um, very different score. But I I mean, still great nonetheless. I I think it, it shows how, like, how much of a versatile kind of composer he is. And that like he can make something as booming and crazy as Lord of the Rings and then turn something out that was like very slow and a lot more quiet uh, compared to Lord of the Rings, but uh, still amazingly done nonetheless. Yeah. He won the Academy Award for best music, original score, the Lord of the Rings. He actually won it two years, uh, 20 or 2002 and 2004. So he won it for the, uh, the two towers as well. All right, what a king. <laughs> what a king is right. Return of the king? Whoa. Back oh my to God. my journalism point. I may I want to make sure I mention this to the listener because I obviously spent obviously spent a lot of time comparing this movie to a lot of the stuff that I learned in the my journalism class, so I might as well throw it out. Some of the big components of the film that are are 100% accurate to real-life investigative journalism are at the beginning when Barron, Marty Barron, who comes in as the new editor of The Globe, he has a hunch 
for investigating for continuing the investigation of the the um, Gagan case. That hunch is a very big one of the big ways that spotlight teams or investigative journalists will get into and pursue a story. They performed a, a they performed a hypothesis, which is a big deal as well. That you know the priests were abusing these kids under the cardinal. They included things like sniff, which is searching around and trying to find a path into their story, and then serious investigation, which is essentially the rest of the film. Preliminary, preliminary checking they showed as well, which they you know got all those clip those clippings from past Globe articles on the priests and read through those preliminary checking, and that eventually led them to Phil Silviano, who was the snap the guy that led snap for the uh, victims yeah. of the sexual abuse. And okay. they showed great organization as well. They did a nice job with really highlighting the use of records, right? Cause, and, and, and data because they went through the, the, they went through the priest directories, right? As I mentioned earlier about the sick leave and, and stuff like that, as well as, you know, getting the court documents for that confirmed that, that the cardinal was aware of of some of the stuff that was going on, so that was just some of the stuff there. But enough of the hardcore journalism side of things. Let's get into the filmmaking. Well, we'll get into the story overall, and then we'll get into some of the filmmaking stuff. I mean, which we already have. But TJ, did you know this story at all before going into the film? Did, have you had you heard of it prior? Yes. Um, I didn't know much about it. I just know it happened. Um, because I knew, uh, well, at the end, there's like a list of like all the towns that they found something like that in. And one of them, I grew up in Portland and one of them was not too far from Portland. So I'm guessing it had something to do with that Mm. or just even in general. I think it, it was a big thing, if, like, you know, like for a while, and uh, I think I just probably offhand heard of it, but I never looked into it because, I mean, I didn't. I was young. I didn't know what I was talking. Or of what, course, no, yeah, I was I, about. yeah, we were. But, yeah, this was around you know two thousand one, two that. This was two thousand two, so of course we wouldn't have. When the articles yeah, came we, out, so we would have no, had no idea. Yeah, this was obviously. Yeah, um, we would have heard about it way after. But but no, yeah, it is. It's a, and again, the film does a great job with this. It, they show it is really messed up and really depressing. It's oh yeah. We won't go too deep into it, but I mean, for those that ob- that don't know, well, obviously you better have watched the film, so now you know. But. Just a little overview. Basically, these priests, there were eventually 70 confirmed, as the movie points out, that were sexually abusing these children under the cardinal who knew who knew about this, who knew about all of it, as well as, you know, just fam- even some families knowing about all this stuff. It was very, very disturbing and very corrupt and everything. And the spotlight team caught them and and busted them and exposed them to the world which you know shows the importance of journalism you know journalism today obviously doesn't have the gravitas that it that it used to have because you know 
there's no you have constantly you know left journalists and right journalists there's no journalism's kind of got a bad name because of that but uh, back then it was very much you know the public relied on on journalism and for them to bust open this whole unfortunate situation is pretty big and again shows the importance of investigative journalism and why we need good journalists in the world so that is essentially the spotlight story i mean it's really you can describe it in in two sentences but it's much more you know powerful and bigger and saddening than than that but um yeah i don't know if you want to add anything tj about the the whole story but that's really my just overall analysis and explanation of the of the plot no i think you i think you hit it in spades i think yeah it, it, it's not a crazy over-the-top plot but i think you explained pretty well yeah all right let's get into some filmmaking stuff i uh, one thing i love about any you know film or you know i guess news film a film that has to do with newspaper journalism uh, specifically, I'm referring to all the presidents, men, and other movies with along that nature. I love any newsroom chit chat. It's it's kind of charming, quirky, funny, and you feel very included in a way with with some with a lot of the chit chat that goes on, and it's very it's very comforting. You know, there's that moment where Resendez, Mark Ruffalo, goes up to that one guy while Baron is having his first meeting with kind of like the heads of all the different um, parts of the newspaper, and he's trying to get information out of him on what's going on, and the guy's like, get out of here, dude. Like, I'm trying to do my work. Get out of here. It very yeah. much, you know, workspace-like and funny and comforting. I really enjoy that kind of stuff. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's always something about, like, even just in general, like workplace, like when it does it well, like, um, like when it just kind of focuses on a workspace and shows how people, like people doing their, their thing, but like, it makes you feel like you're, it it makes you feel like you're part of the the process. Um, yeah. And you're like, you're just a bystander looking in and there's something cool about that. Definitely. The, the actor for Marty Baron, I can't place his name, but do you know do you know his name, TJ? Oh, look right now. Look right now. He plays. He does a great job playing a fish out of water at the beginning. Very unaccustomed to the culture of Boston and you know baseball, which is a big thing in Boston, obviously, and sports in general. You know, he has the Cursor Than Bambino book when he first meets Michael Keaton's character who's the head of the spotlight team and he's essentially, you know, says, no, I don't really like baseball, but I want to get a feel for the culture sort of thing is what he ultimately says. And I thought that was kind of a, a funny yet very uh, funny touch yet. And also very representative of, you know, his fish out of water state at the beginning of the film, which I thought was nice to see. Oh yeah, um, that guy is a uh, Leo Scriber from uh, who's the Kingpin in a uh, 
Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, he's the voice for that. Interesting. Yeah, and he's also a Sabretooth in all the X or in a lot of the X-Men movies. Mm. So is he um, he's a decently big actor, not necessarily big actor, I guess, but he's been in yeah, some stuff. Yeah, he's been around for quite a while. I think. Mm. Let's see. Yeah, I want by the looks of it, he started late 90s-ish. Okay. So yeah. He's been around for a hot sec, but um, yeah, he, he, yeah, at the beginning he he does a good job of being like, like you said, the fish out of water kind of thing, where he's just like, uh, what is, what did some of these Boston, like, things like yeah. baseball, like, I'll, I'll try to understand it, but mm-hmm. probably not my thing, right? And I think another thing too is that fish out of water really does a great job with, you know, forming a foundation for his change in direction of the newspaper that he's in and, you know, his different opinions and places that he wants to go compared to all these other, you know, staff members in the newspaper who have been, who have basically lived in Boston their entire life. You know, they mention how a lot of the staff grew up in Boston and since he didn't, it, it, it adds to that, and this is relating not just to the filmmaking aspect, but also to the true story itself of saying, yo, I don't care about, you know, these priests or the, the value that these priests have in in the community and how they're looked upon. I want to continue this story and and push through with this. I don't care how big the church is in, in Boston. I want to go through with it and can look follow up on these stories and and again, that adds to that the fish out of the water helps with that from a, a movie perspective and a true story perspective and, and in the what actually happened as well. I'm assuming that happened, so that really helped. Speak adding on to that, the movie does a really good job with bringing an understanding to how big the church is in Boston. And how much of a hold it has on the citizens of Boston, you know, whether that's in with like the the playground being in the background of the church, or from a, from a physical perspective, or you know, talking about these families that knew about all this sexual assault assault stuff but didn't want to comment on it because of the presence and the power of the church and also the power of the church is shown with, you know, those court documents getting sealed because they make that comment. He's with Rosenius is with Garabedian and Garabedian says, yes, they're public, but they're not public because the church is here essentially. And they just do a, a great job with bringing that with showing the importance and power of the church in Boston. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, it, it. It definitely feels like that, like a big looming presence over the movie. It's like kind of. It's just like they're either there's something like representative of them in the background, or like it. It, it just feels like they're always never too far from like the characters, which is really 
which it, 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 it adds like an interesting layer. It adds really some cool. suspense is, is what it adds. Yes. It adds some suspense and, you know, we do kind of get that – you were talking kind of about over-the-shoulder stuff. It, it You see that physically too at times. You know, there's yeah. the – You'll sometimes see there was – I believe it's the PR guy for the for the Boston College. One of the guys that was in the meeting with Keaton and McAdams when they went to his – Michael Keaton's original school that he went to for high school. You know, he comes in later literally somewhat over the shoulder of Keaton and slightly threatened him but not necessarily threatened him saying, yo, don't – go through with this story, you know, you know how big the church is and how much it's helped you and and others helped people in Boston and how how much good the church has done. That sort of over the shoulder vague you know commenting on don't do this, you know, I, I that sort of thing was executed well. Oh yeah. Going yeah, it, like oh yeah. Like I said, it, it it does like add a weird amount of suspense, kind of. Even though it shouldn't be like this, like full like like a like a I don't want to say villainous force, but like, uh, God, where, what's the word I'm searching for? It it, it just has like a a presence. It, it makes you unsettled. I guess is the way I'm yeah. what I'm going for. Yeah. And the score, too, sometimes helps with that. We were talking about the score. It, it kind of, oh, yeah. at times, will add, will help with that unsettling nature, which, again, really helps with the environment, at developing and the, the, the environment. Oh, yeah. I like the little quirks of Ruffalo and Keaton's characters. It really shows that they researched their individual characters, their real-life characters well. And, you know, Ruffalo kind of has that little tilt with his head that he often does, and and he's kind of always kind of uh, bent forward. He's always kind of crouched and that sort of thing. And Keaton, his mannerisms are, are very unique to his character. And, again, yeah, it shows they did a good job from that aspect. One, one kind of cool trivia piece, I don't remember if I put this in my five facts for Pop Quiz Hot Shot, but Mark Ruffalo would have the real Mike Resendez read, him, read his lines to him in between breaks and filming, which I thought was kind of interesting. Okay. He definitely went, That's cool. Yeah, he definitely went full out with his performance, which I'm, I'm down for. And enjoyed. Yeah. Added a cool layer to it. It did. I touched on this a little earlier. Sort of, but not really. The dynamics. I loved seeing all the dynamics. Different dynamics in the film being represented well. Family dynamics, work, working, you know, worker dynamics between employees, interviewees. Church members, church members, you know, versus the the reporters, the journalists, that sort of thing. I thought they all differentiated themselves really well and 
all kind of added a uniqueness to the film and added depth to it because you really got to see some of the the, the rapport with the journalists and, and the interviewees. And we, we just talked about this, but the 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 evil the evil of the of those that want the church to be protected versus the journalists all kind of had their own style and feeling which made the made the, it a very interesting watch oh yeah yes i think you hit that really well and then chemistry obviously comes with that you know the the chemistry was was great among the four spotlight journalists the actors mark ruffalo rachel mcadams michael keaton and James Darcy, right? He's the other guy, Matt. Uh, the guy with the mustache. Brian, or what uh, Brian Darcy James. Brian Darcy James. Close, but not close. Getting there. Getting there. You could tell there was all there was a relationship there, a foundation already present, which is what you want considering they had been together already for quite some time with the spotlight team. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, it, it, it just felt, the, the way they interacted just felt natural. It didn't, it felt like it was just four people talking to each other as four people do. It wasn't anything crazy. Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out to me the most was the weaving of character storylines and what characters were doing throughout the film. They, it was executed really well, and one of the finer moments of that is when the first set of interviews are being done with Patrick and Joe. Rachel McAdams' character is interviewing Pfeiffer, is interviewing Joe, and Resendez yes. is interviewing Patrick. The way they intertwine those two interviews and slowly build them up to where they it's reach so good. like ultimate emotional potential of just depression and sadness effectively done and they knew when to cut each interview at what time to switch back and forth or switch to something else and it really hits you it's one of in my opinion the most emotional moments in the film especially i'll get to this now is is that joe actor the guy that plays joe holy freak He's doesn't have a big role in this film, obviously. He's not a big star or anything. I don't recognize him from anything else, but holy crap. He went so hard into that, you know, interview and oh, yeah. that acting role. Honestly, that might be my favorite acting. It's definitely my favorite acting moment in the entire film and might be my favorite actor from the entire film purely because of how well, how innocent and how emotionally damaged he portrayed his character to the fullest was it was incredible Uh, i have it i have it in caps here in my notes incredible because it was and i don't know if i have seen a actor slash character with that little of importance in the film have that much importance in the film it 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 blew me away i i loved it so much yeah, it, oh my god. So good. 
he went hard, man. It was so so good. It really was. He brought all he brought all the stops out. He left nothing behind. Uh, going back to the the weaving thing, though, sometimes you know movies can really botch this thing with when to place certain scenes at what point, especially, like I said, if they're switching back between multiple or a couple locations. But this film never had any trouble with that at all, ever. And again, that isn't a testament to the emotions that they get out of, you know, me and you as as audience members. At least definitely me. Yeah, and, and keep I, us... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to say, it, just, it always made you feel emotional in some way. Uh, like, in ways of, like, cutting to different things. Mm-hmm. I was going to say something, and then I forgot. <laughs> what was I going to say? It, it keeps... You know they do a good job when they're going back and forth because you keep whatever emotion that you had from one scene in the other. And then also you are always able to understand what is going on, which you'd think could get complicated because there is a lot of stuff going on in this film. But again, that editing really kept you as an audience member engaged and understanding of what's going on. Because there's yeah. a lot of stuff that <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in this movie that they go through. I, I mean, they definitely don't go through as, as much in all the presence men. All the presence men they do talk about a lot, but I think they talk about even more in this film. And I would say the same thing with it's definitely on par with no, no, no. It's even more than something like the Batman that we just watched or three days of the condor, which you have also watched like me, we watched it together. Those movies, as you can agree, TJ have a lot, a lot of content in there of of mystery and investigative content. But I think this movie, it is a lot, but I think spotlight trumps it all to be honest, because there's, I wanted, this is my second time watching it. There is a, boatload of crap dude of information that you have to process and understand what's going on especially in that second fourth of the film when they really start getting in the investigation and you have phil silviano you have snipe snipes i think it's it's sniper snipes who they talk to on the phone it's crazy man but i think again that editing they really let us understand everything and because in part of that great editing and weaving between storylines oh yeah it's yeah there's so much got like names being thrown around for a while and you're just like whoa <laughs> it yeah if you're it, it's one of those ones you definitely have to pay attention to or you get lost in the names within like two minutes if that a hundred percent did you understand it tj could, could you manage to because it's interesting because you are a first-time watcher were you able to understand everything? Uh, for the most part, I got a lot of it. I think, I think I zoned out for maybe like thirty seconds, and I missed like one thing, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" So I had to rewind. But like, I think 
I think I think it was just like, all right, I'm gonna sit down and try and understand this. Because I was at first, I was like, okay, I don't I don't know how in depth this will be, and then I started going getting going. I was like, I have to pay attention to this a lot more than I was expecting. So, I, I like to think I got a lot of it, but <laughs> I don't actually know. <laughs> Do you like these kind of movies? The very the the movies that require you to pay attention a hundred and ten percent of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think they definitely have their place, and they're like very interesting to watch. It, it, it it's just it's something that's nice and like it requires a lot from the viewer to like just sit there and be like, okay, here's what we're throwing down try to understand it as much as you can the first time it, it, it adds like a level of rewatch to it where it's like oh i missed this connection the first time but i get it this time kind of thing which is nice i like that kind of thing agreed it, it definitely is as you mentioned one of those movies where you as i can attest to this understand more and appreciate more on a second watch because of all that information that's being thrown at you yeah but but Again, like you said, I still understood all of it for the most part the first time. I mean, I knew where they were going and and what they had already learned going forward, that sort of thing. So I didn't think that was an issue, but definitely a second rewatch helps a lot. Yes. Oh, the, yeah. The, the writing is a big piece, obviously, in this film, and it is done at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit. I, I think I have three or four bullet points of quotes that just stuck out to me, and I can read a couple now. One of them is from Garabedian when he says, The church talks in centuries. Do you think you have the power to take that on? That was a big one that stood out to me. Oh, yeah. That's a great quote. Great quote. One that is incredibly powerful. This is from Patrick. He says, You know, I never even touched my ice cream. It just melted down my arm. When he's talking about Oof. that priest in the car when he reaches down yeah, yeah, and abuses him. That's probably my favorite quote in the entire film because holy frick. The Patrick's body language, the actor's body language, the way he says it and, you know, what it actually, you know, represents and, and symbolizes and means and... Yeah, it's incredibly powerful and hits you like a ton of bricks. Because as much as I love – and and Joe's interview is, again, my favorite. And like I said, it's probably my favorite. It's my favorite acting bit in the entire thing. But that line is my favorite line in the film. And I think it's – the writing is just so clever and so powerful, you know. Um, It definitely adds that. The, the whole mentioning of the ice cream definitely adds that innocence that really hurts you as an audience member when you think about what these priests are doing to the children. Oh, yeah. The, oh. It, it was another thing. It's that, hard. It is. It really is. Uh, uh, adding on to this 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 note, we, we won't get too depressed. Don't worry. We'll, we'll go back to some more cool uh, film stuff. But And this is cool film stuff. This is good writing. At the end of the interview with Pfeiffer and Joe, Pfeiffer says, did you try and tell anyone? 
and Joe says, like, who? A priest? Yeah. You know, because those were, that's the thing, Those the priests in Boston, you know, that's who you went to. Yeah. You know, these poor kids, that's a big thing. These poor kids, these kids who have family issues, that's where they go to a lot of the time. And <laughs> these people that they wanted to lean on and, and stuff were very corrupt and, again, adds more understanding to those that weren't there or lived in Boston and showed just how bad all this stuff was. Yeah. it. Yeah, it's... It's, it's something, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my god! <laughs> Back to the writing. Well, I guess we are still on the writing. Yeah. John, what are you doing with yourself? The, the 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 slow progressions of of realizations and findings and reveals was all developed well. It, it and I think adds to that whole being able to understand a lot of it. It was very methodical and adds it, – it's it's entertaining because the slow churning of research and everything adds that inclusion that we've kind of talked about a little already of the audience member thinking, oh, cool. I, I feel a part of this kind of and I'm with you. I'm with these actors. I'm with these reporters you know, figuring out this stuff. And and it adds a sense yeah. of of conclusion as well. It, it has very satisfying conclusions because of the slow buildup of all these different avenues that the reporters are going through to find the things that they're trying to find about these priests and the church. Yeah, there's there's something about it that like yeah, the slow progression it feels um like rewarding at the end. It, makes you feel like you like you and the characters like put the pieces together and it just feels good at the end without a doubt continuing with small talk we talked about it with office small talk anytime there is guys at chit-chatting on a golf course i seem to see we seem to see that a lot in films Oh yeah. That always gets me. It's kind of just again quirky and funny at times. It's attractive, I guess in a way because it's it's I it's, I guess in this film too it's refreshing almost, right? Cuz it's it's that's really the only scene we get outside of the city. You know, where it's not yeah. straight up city shots and yeah, I'm in the city. Going. And I think that might also be why it attracts me because it's refreshing. But nah, yeah, I you know in movies, this is obviously this movie is a lot different than than this movie. But Space Jam has that kind of golfing stuff, and there, there's some others that I could mention that I'm forgetting right now. Space but, Jam, Space Jam, what a movie! But you know what I'm saying? There's there that seems to be a I don't want to say a trope, but it is pretty common in some of these very drama-oriented yeah. films where you'll have a random golf scene that lasts for anywhere from, I don't know, 45 seconds to, you know, two minutes or something of the main characters playing golf for really not necessarily any good reason other than they're playing <laughs> golf. 
which is yes. not a problem. I mean, I mean, they it, it, we still get development going in this in this scene, which is with Jim Sullivan, and I think Mickey is the name of, or Mike is the name of Michael Keaton's character. I think uh, you want to look that up for me, TJ. Oh, uh, Michael Keaton. Yeah, uh, since you had the camera, Robbie. Robbie. Okay, I suck. This is my second time watching it. John, you're stupid. <laughs> Robbie and Jim, there is actually still some development going on because we really start to understand that Jim, there's something off with him, you know, because my who Michael Keaton's character, Robbie, knows obviously who Jim is, but we as audience members don't. But again, we yeah. as audience members start to understand there's something kind of off with this dude. And he obviously knows something that he doesn't want to talk about or care to indulge in. So there is that sort of progress going on in the film. But you know what I'm saying. They do kind of have these random golf scenes where in drama movies where you think, well, does that really? Like that's just kind of random and just shows up out of nowhere. But it works because I find them interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there, there is something about it that's just like, it works so well. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is kind of hard to place it. It's kind of hard to place it. Oh, yeah. I love the subtle hint of the rise of the internet. They, they, they. <gasps> yes. yes. The internet. Because this is 2000. The dot com bubble. <laughs> yeah. There, this is 2001, 2002. So. You're, we, there's still the internet, but it's not. But the main source of of news media. is uh, media yeah. is still the newspaper. It's yeah. not the internet, and we get a couple lines that reference you know the 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 subtle rise of the internet, and then also I think it's one of my favorite shots and one of my favorite set design set pieces is the AOL Anywhere sign right above the Globes uh, building. Yeah. I thought that is so, you know, hilarious and foreshadowing of what's to come. Yeah. Yeah, they're, oh, I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Such good placement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's see. The joys of AOL. <laughs> the joys of AOL. I, I never, I've, we were I, too young for that. Well, yeah. I mean, there's still AOL accounts though. There's that's still yeah. a, like the one AOL is like really big. Oh, right. My, yeah. my mom has an AOL email, but that's, that's the only person I know that has a AOL still email. Has one. Do you know TJ, anyone that has an AOL email? Uh, still no. Yeah. I don't. I, I I'm a Gmail guy, so Gmail gang. <laughs> yeah, because I think it went from like AOL to like Microsoft, and then like to Google. I think that's mm-hmm. like been like the steady progression of email. I see. And you're a Gmail guy too. I'm pretty sure. I have a Gmail. I, it's kind of just my spam email. <laughs> okay. I just use my Apple one. Okay. Nice. Why not? All right. I see how it is. That's fine. Us Gmail guys yeah. will just you know. We're going to separate from you, TJ. Uh, you know, that's that's an yeah, issue we'll work on world. later. <laughs> you and I will have to have a talk after our uh, after this episode about your 
not not using your your Gmail email to the full extent. So, yeah, I. Oh, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> This will be scary. It's, don't worry. You're going to be in a world of pain. No, just kidding. I didn't uh. say anything. I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually going to reach through the screen. I'm going to go full – what is it? The Exorcist? I'm going to go full The Exorcist and like reach through the screen and like – yeah, it's going to be cool. I think you're thinking of Poltergeist. Sick. I should no longer be a host of this podcast. <laughs> See you later. You, but you, know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, okay. Hey, people, if you want to throw hate at me, fine. I'm ready for it. But I want to – I've never I, seen Poltergeist though. I know. And I wanted, to, I wanted to make the reference though, TJ. I had to do it, man. I had to do you it. You had to do it. It was me. right there and I screwed it up. Should we get – Yeah, the, go the ahead. two movies where hands come through TV screen or there's like hands in, in TV screens that like are really weird are – uh, Poltergeist and Videodrome. Okay, like the two big ones. Okay. Well, I the think Videodrome. we should make a little. We should have little tallies every episode of moments where either I or you screw up with movie references. Most of the time it's going to be me, so that's going to be one sided. But nonetheless, <laughs> I think it would add an interesting twist to the episode. Um, yeah, I think it, it adds something new. We should maybe have some sort of punishment maybe. You know, the other person, if we're in person, gets to slap the other one. That would be great. Oh. Or, that's no, a little no, violent. That's a little violent. But how about this? We slap each other with pool noodles. I like this idea. Less violent, <laughs> more fun, but still you're shaming someone. Yeah. I like this idea. I, I will write this in my notes right now. Pool <laughs> noodle... <laughs> Slaps. Cool noodle fight. Specifically, we need color matching. So we have four mics, blue, orange, pink, and green. So we'll have to get a green, blue, orange, and pink pool noodle, and we'll be set. This is genius. Any – for the three people that are listening right now, please, you know, comment on our Instagram, Manic Movie Misfits Pod. Tell us, yo, TJ John, this is a great idea. You need to slap each other with pool noodles at the end of every episode for the times that people screw up. You know when you know when I will actually be on the winning side of things is when Emerson is on the episode because he says <laughs> he gets so many things wrong. It, it's it's not even funny. Are you just coming for Emerson at this point? Just like, hey, hey, girls are gonna fight each other. I have had so much emotional damage from that man from all the roasts that he's thrown at me and made fun of me. You better believe I'm coming after him. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, back to the movie at hand. Tangent, we'll count that in tangent number two. I should get a tally, tallying system for that as well. We need to use the whiteboard more, first of all, when we get back to the studio, get back to the podcast room in the summer. Oh my god. Yes. Again, we mentioned this earlier, but sort of, I love unpacking loads of information there's something about include there's something about this inclusion in in the film that that comes with this that I love so much and makes the movie just more interesting in general cuz you do feel a part of it yeah oh yeah there there is something about like tons of data be or not data but like info being thrown at you that's like 
and like taking it all in and being like, okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just like yeah, internalizing it. Yeah. Just like take, yeah, I, I that's kind of where I'm going. <laughs> I keep like, my mind keeps running in circles of like the same three things. <laughs> no, yeah, but, no, for sure. It's, it prevents you from going in a dreamlike state that you might want for other movies like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, I guess, at times, and Blade Runner 2049 at times. There's better references I could make. You know, some David Lynch stuff, definitely, where you kind of want to go into more of more of that dreamlike state compared to this film, which is very much don't kind of lose yourself. Let's be focused on the task at hand. And yeah. so you can understand what's going on. You get what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah, I get where you're going. Um, yeah, there's some movies where you can just kind of, you can take a moment, like, take, like, zone out, kind of do your thing, like, vibe. But this isn't one of them. <laughs> Definitely no. not. No, it's not. We mentioned Marty Baron's character a couple times already, but I loved how they found a place and a role for him throughout the middle section of the film, probably the second, fourth, and third, fourth of the film, because after he assigns them the investigation, technically they don't really, they could just cast him aside because he's not necessarily crazy important, you know, for the, the development of the plot, but they throw him in there every... Gosh, I want to say every he's in there 15, quite a bit. yeah, 10, 15 minutes. I, I would say about 15 minutes. He's at least in at least in the movie once every 15 minutes in that middle two-fourths. Oh, yeah. Doing something that is actually productive to the plot and the story at hand and, and setting the the scene of Boston, which I thought was really nice because we didn't forget about him and – and got to see more of his character, which he, he like many of the other actors, other actors in the film, he does a subtle job, but and, and does it to the fullest extent of what that character I believe should be, uh, from my understanding. So that was nice to see him constantly being brought back in a productive way. Yeah, it, it's nice that they didn't just bring in Michael Keaton to be like in there for the first like 10 minutes and then do nothing you, you mean, just yeah you mean um you don't mean or, sorry yeah the other guy sorry yeah <laughs> um yeah or the other guy he's he's a big name from it, 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 he's the guy from madman right no i'm yes. talking about the Wait, i'm so confused what Liv, guy are we talking about live schreiber oh. what's his name what's his last name schreiber something like that yeah yeah, I'm talking about him, yes. Marty okay. Baron, the redhead. Yes, I think sorry. He, I think he's redhead, redheaded. Or brown. Not really. Brown? Is it brown hair? What is it? Something like that. Anyway, yes. yeah, you know what I'm sorry, talking about. I, all the names for me are like melded together. That's the thing, um, is there are a lot, like you said, there are a lot of names that get thrown out. Yeah, no, I'm talking about yes. the okay. new guy. Yes, he's, yes. okay. Um, yes, Uh it is nice to see him be thrown in every now and then just kind of doing his thing. Like he's not a big force to like the mystery at hand, but like he's still there doing his thing. And he like, he pops up and has like some words of like 
I still think there's something going on. And I, I, I like you see him get accustomed and stuff like that. It's cool to see him like change in the background, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But, no, I agree. And speaking of him being in the background, I love the the pano shot where it's who is it? I think yes, it's Mark Ruffalo and Michael Keaton and they're walking into work and the shots following them. This is the day after this is the morning of the paper getting posted about the priests. And I didn't notice this the first time, but at the very end of that pano, you see Marty Baron in the corner at his office with the light on, and he's the only one there on that floor because I think it's a Sunday. And yeah. he's working. I thought that was beautifully placed and very representative of, of his, his, his importance character. and of his background work and the things he was doing kind of in the background while this whole while the spotlight reporters were going around investigating all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it it also like dives into like what we know of his personality. Like he, like they don't make like a huge point on like making it an arc for him. But you know that he's like, he's a hard worker. He'll be there when like in his off time. And that kind of like cements it. Cause it's like, Cause you, you get like the point where he's like, he's devoted to like getting the news out no matter kind of ab- about who or like what time he's just there, which is really cool. It is going back to more of the writing. Cause every once in a while in my notes, I have a quote that I wrote down. Another great quote here is if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. Mm. very powerful again and well written definitely a top three for me of the movie oh yeah that's that's a good one my favorite shot in the film is which I didn't you know which I never really thought I would say because like we said before the cinematography is very simplistic and 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 I don't want to go as far as say basic because I don't want to throw shade at the cinematographer because he definitely did what he was supposed to do. I feel I I feel like because that's all you could really ask for a movie like that. You're not asking for <laughs> Lords of Arabia or you know some other crazy shot movie Dunkirk or something. You know. Yeah. But my favorite shot in the film, and I thought the placement of the characters specifically is what I liked so much about this is when they were all around the telephone with Sype, and it, it, it centers on the phone at first and then slowly works its way out yes. as he's on the phone, and they're all surrounded by the camera. Or, or surrounded by, so good. They're all surrounding the, fo- uh, the phone. But and, and what makes it so good, besides that, is the fact that they're all placed at different depths, different distance away from the camera. So, you know, you have Matt Carroll and Pfeiffer... I, if, I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly, that are you know kind of closer to the to the phone and into the camera, but still a little spaced from each other. One's a little closer than the other, and then you have Mark Ruffalo and Michael Keaton that are farther in the background, but still in different places as well. So you see a lot of depth 
with that shot, and of course, also with the desks and everything. And I've started to notice that more with other films that I, I love so much. I, I love how they play with the camera from straight away from it sort of thing. And that's what stood out to me and why I enjoyed that that shot so much. Yeah, that 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 was one shot where I was just like, I immediately was like, wait a minute, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They and, and to be honest, they do a good job with depth throughout the entirety of the film too. From a, from a shooting perspective, again, it's just very subtle, and and stuff like that. Yeah, nothing the, too crazy. Right. The silence, we, we, the silence we've sort of mentioned, but it really pays off at a lot of those scenes, a lot of those even heavy dialogue scenes, right, where they're either asking questions and there's a long pause or they're talking, they're having a monologue or they're having long conversation and there's pauses in between their words. They really hit hard and I think that's just an exemplification of again the writing and the, the score at times i guess because of how subtle it is but you really feel those there's really an oomph to those pauses in the dialogue when they're talking about a lot of the heavy stuff and and keeps you it kind of perks you up every once in a while cuz you know they're going through some i don't know some conversation with whoever and you'll you'll hit a pause they'll hit a pause and it's not incredibly long it's not really that long but it, it's still long enough to where it's it, it it's it stands out and you kind of perk up and you're like oh that's kind of interesting i didn't it, it kind of adds that more emotion to it uh and and things of that nature it's heavy hitting and suspenseful yeah i get where you're going there was i i didn't i did not expect this but there was some horror there was some horror movie aspects to this film, specifically one, I would just say one, is when Matt Carroll finds out that one of the priests lives in his neighborhood and he has that realization. He's like, yes. he has like that, oh shit, realization. And you see him run out the, the, onto the street and, and it's, a, there, at times it's almost a tracking shot of him running through the neighborhood, through the bare streets with dim dim lighting, it's dark out, it's night. My immediate thought was, are we watching Halloween right now? What, what's going on? <laughs> it it was it was cool to see kind of almost like a horror you know, shooting technique and horror moment in the film because that's essentially what a lot of the what a lot of the stories are. All the stories are. They are horror. It is depressing. It is sad. And I thought that was kind of cool to see a very horror movie-esque sequence and haunting realization from from Matt Carroll. Yeah. That 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 was a that that just that scene in general was one I was just like I I think stood out cuz yeah, like you said it 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 added like a sense of like hitting close to home kind of thing. Like or not like, no, yeah, yeah, Hitting personally, but like, right, right, yeah, like where it's like it's right there, and like it, it's it's just like it's right around the corner, and it adds like this sense of like 
oh my god, it could happen to anyone, kind of thing. So, a hundred percent. Gotta, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I will want. I do want to point out that Jim, Jim Sullivan, who we mentioned earlier, he is actually. This is more some more trivia stuff. He's actually a collection of sources for the Spotlight team. In in, in actuality, there were multiple. Sources that confirmed all these priests, but, you know, for move, for time's sake, you know, the movie is, you know, two hours. They have to get things done. They just compiled all of them into one character, Jim, which I, I had yeah. no problem with, obviously. Yeah, I I was here for it. Yeah. it, it Again, it, it added simplicity to it because you're already dealing with so much stuff. I don't think you'd want to bring in however many sources that they had to use to confirm, you know, 20, whatever, 15, 20 sources that just would make things more complicated. Yeah. I like one moment that stood out to me from a journalist perspective and from a journalist perspective was when Marty Baron said when they started getting a lot of this information about the priests, you know, they had I think I don't remember how many priests they had at the time. They had quite a bit. And Resendez really wanted to go to press with this this information, but Marty said, hold up, guys. We have a chance to bust the system, and yeah. we should spend more time to bust the system and not just throw this out there. And I thought that was genius placement and obviously a big piece of journalism as well. You know, you that that's more powerful, obviously, is, is showing that the whole system is corrupt rather than these individual people that's yeah, more powerful. just one person it, it, right it's bigger and i think that that highlights what journalism is and in, in certain investigative journalism is in certain aspects which is finding the bigger more important story and posting that instead yeah i get where you're going with that i really love the montages in this movie there's a couple and i, I Montages in general just get me going, man. They, they, they just have the good vibes. They get me going. I mean, I'm just, yes. There's just so satisfying. They're working. These characters are working. They're getting things done. I, I, I love the montages in 4V Ferrari. And I love the monta- a couple montages that are shown here. The first one more so than the other because the other one, the second one, which I'll talk about in a second, is more depressing and, and saddening. But... The first montage is when they go start going through all the the directories of the priests and they have the rulers and they're and they're going down and they're looking for sick leave or some other designation that represents them, you know, moving every two or three years. And and them typing things into the Excel sheet and all that sort of thing. It gets me going. And the 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 score too kind of picks up a little as well in that moment and the score the, for me does a lot in these montages maybe we should just do a whole podcast on montages at this point but it, it really gets me going and i'm just like i'm ready i it's they're super entertaining uh, w- what are your thoughts on montages tj i love them oh uh, i mean you can't go wrong with a montage yeah if you said oh. otherwise tj you might as well have just left this podcast because i wouldn't have let you <laughs> you stayed on so that's good you said that yeah um yeah i mean yeah 
like you said, Ford v Ferrari. Dude, Ford I, v I Ferrari's montages hit hard. They do. They're so good. Um, there's something about like when they're done super well, where it's just like, it, I, oh, I can't describe it. It's so good. Montages with simple scores too, simple pieces of writing, I think are I like more because it 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 still adds to the montage but doesn't take away from the clips that are being put together and the and what's going on in them. Cuz I've yeah. seen montages that have loud, you know, music from either the score or actual songs, you know, the soundtrack. And they're all right at times, but there's something that I enjoy more from montages paired with simple scores but that that fit obviously what the tone of the what of the tone of what the characters are doing in it. Yeah. Uh I mean yeah the simplicity of them is sometimes like the joy of them. Bingo. You don't need it to be anything grand scheme crazy over the topness. You could just a little, a little simplenesses. Not that bad. Mm-hmm. And speaking of fitting the tone, the second montage, the second montage of the movie is when they go back through a lot of their sources and get more information from them. You see a shot from Joe again, and just some other people that we hadn't seen before that are from you know Snap or something or other you know victims that they got from the lawyers. And in mm-hmm. that montage, it, the, the, the piece of music playing is much more saddening and mellow and, and, and things along that, that line. It, it matches what's going yeah. on, which is good, obviously, yeah. because then you don't, you don't want to miss the, the tone of what's actually taking place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think – yeah, the, both those montages have their place, and I think they fit a vibe where it's they fit, they fit the vibe of like the section of the movie where it's like the first one it it it, it, it feels like it's like let's get the detective work done, and you feel like uh it, it gets you kind of like go in and you're like ah oh, got to figure out all the stuff or like the set but other than the second one like you just said it's a lot more like. I don't want to say saddening where it's like they're reaffirming what they know and that like this is a depressing event and they have to like recheck everything to be like yeah this is not okay for sure I was thinking about this it is definitely one of the most powerful moments in the film, I don't know, I, I, it's close to being the most powerful. Ah, uh, yeah, screw it. I'll say it's the most powerful moment in the film. It definitely hit me the hardest. And there's some scenes, too, at the very end that hit me the hardest. But it is when the kids are singing Silent Night in the church, uh, over mm. the, overall the scenes where the spotlight reporters are putting their finishing touches on the work and realizing this is going to go to press and this is going to be huge. That kind of made me teary eyed, to be honest. Um, it got me pretty, pretty strongly and rightfully so they 
the the situational awareness of where to place the kids obviously in the church while these reporters are going to bust this whole thing and literally the kids that are singing are the are the kids that you know get abused and stuff by the priests that are surrounding them while they're singing this silent night with all yeah. these people in the church <laughs> dude that hit me so hard it's... man that is so sad. That is yeah. so depressing, man. It, yeah, that was, that 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 section. Oh, like that scene. I was just, I was just like, oh, oh no. And oh. you know, Resendez, Mark Ruffalo encapsulates this perfectly because he's the one that's watching them while this is going on through the window of the, or he's he's inside the church, but in the church and he kind of has that teary teary eyed expression of man this is this is just this ain't sad it. and there's a lot of things that are going to change and him not really still not I guess not necessarily believing what he's actually seeing well he probably does but you get what I'm saying it's just <sighs> crazy yeah. stuff that he's that he's seeing and man it, probably it is definitely I there was a couple moments where I got teary eyed in this film it was that and then the what was the other moment oh when the grandma reads the Nana is her name reads the newspaper she uh Pfeiffer gives her one of the first copies that night and she asks Pfeiffer for a glass of water and she's getting choked up that hit me so hard too oh, oh yeah. yeah that was yeah, that was crazy. Because, you know, through the film, it showed that it showed Pfeiffer going to church with her. And Pfeiffer mentions, you know, my Nana goes to church three times a week. And yeah. seeing her reading that, you know, her finger going through the lines and just, yeah, man. They, they do a good job with getting your emotions out, that's for sure. Most definitely. What else do I have here? The callback of when Mark Ruffalo and Michael Keaton are walking into the office on the Sunday and they mentioned about, you know, they mentioned about coming into work on Sunday and Mark Ruffalo says, I couldn't get a tea time. I love that kind of funny yeah. callback to earlier when Resendez walks or runs into work and yeah. and Michael Keaton says, I, I couldn't get a tea time or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was a fun callback. And then lastly, for me, you touched on this earlier at the very beginning of the pod, of the episode, actually. Seeing all the cities and countries that had these abusive priests light up on the screen just all of a sudden hit hard as well. It was kind of like that final conclusion to the film and finally fully understanding the gravitas of of the impact that these priests were having on these children and and the world it it was powerful stuff man oh yeah definitely well yeah it, it, it's, it's it it has like a three columns of like or two or three columns of towns like and then it goes like it, like it goes again then it goes again and it goes again, and you're like, oh my god, there's so many, like, places that this was a thing. Like, it's insanity. It is. 
It is it is true insanity. Uh, before we conclude on just the film overall, I will say that to throw out a couple negatives to the film, so I kind of had some have some balance here. I yeah, I, I do think I don't know. I didn't know if I wanted to say this, but Mark Ruffalo sometimes has some overacting in the film that kind of puts me off, like, it doesn't really connect with me. I mean, because purely from the fact that I always liked, for the most part in the film, how everyone seemed quite equal in, in what they were supposed to do from an acting standpoint, but I feel like sometimes Mark Ruffalo thinks, oh, this is my big Oscar moment or something, and maybe goes a little bit too far over the edge as far as what should be displayed in a particular scene. That's just I, maybe that's just me, TJ. But that's what I kind of recognized. Yeah, I um, I think the thing with Mark Ruffalo's acting was his accent. Mm. I mm. found that sometimes he put a little something on it, and then sometimes he didn't. And it was kind of inconsistent. That's a good. I point. think it was just a it was a little touch I noticed like halfway through, or like he had an accent last scene. He doesn't this one. This isn't... Wait a minute. <laughs> that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Well, TJ, what are your concluding thoughts? Or maybe any other negatives that you want to throw out for Spotlight? Um, I don't really have... I, I, I don't think anything too crazy big. I think it's mostly just like... Sometimes the, the way they present, uh, like, findings, it's a little much at times. If you're, like, you take a step back, you're like, whoa. I just got, like, a little too... I, th- I think it's, like, a little bit of over- overstimulation at times, where it's, like, it's just, like, data, and it's, like, shoving it down your throat here and there. It's not that bad. But, like, it's one of those ones where, it's like, if you don't pay attention for two minutes, you're, you might be screwed for the next 20 trying to figure stuff out. And, um, but I, I don't, yeah, I, I personally didn't think anything was that bad about the movie. I don't think there was any bad performance, any bad like sh- shots or edits or anything like that. Mm-hmm. My final conclusion is, and I guess my biggest takeaway from this film is navigation. They really navigate the plot, the you know the editing really well. And I, I mentioned there's several instances of that and several different aspects of that that I've mentioned throughout the the episode. So I think my biggest takeaway is they navigated this film really well. They knew when to start, knew when to end knew when to put these things in, knew how to intertwine them with other things going on at the same time, knew when to place certain tones, when to reach those tones. I think it's navigation for me. And just that, you know, it's really, it's obviously really unfortunate and horrifying with what, with what all went on in the, in this whole thing. And 
I'm glad that the, that the priest that got exposed got exposed, obviously. I mean, there's no other way to put it because that's what you should oh, yeah. feel. So you should feel, yeah. Yeah, you should feel that. If you don't, you have some serious issues. And I'm glad I watched this for my journalism class so I could bring it to this podcast. And I'm glad you watched it too, TJ. I mean, you were bound to watch it at some point anyway because it's the best picture winner. Yeah. And it's a good film, as we yeah, highlighted. It's- been on my radar for a while but it wasn't like i gotta watch it kind of thing i had no idea it was best picture winner actually before really no i had no idea i had no idea i knew that mark ruffalo went up for an oscar and lost but that's it i i it's weird to say i, I had no idea it won best picture but back um, in the year of 2015 right whatever and then before i forget we'll close with my pop quiz hot shot five facts Number one, as I mentioned before, it was nominated for six Oscars and won two. In the baseball game scene, the real Michael Resendez, Sasha Pfeiffer, and Walter Robinson can be seen in the background. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. This is a longer one. Number three, during an interview on National Public Radio's Fresh Air, director Tom McCarthy said that they built a large set to depict many of the Boston Globe offices, where parts of the story take place. When the reporters depicted in the movie first visited the set, they gravitated to their desks, and many of them started to arrange the items on those desks the way they had been at the time. Huh. Number four. As of the film's release, Michael Resendez was the only journalist involved in the investigation still working on the spotlight team. He still he still works. Well, in 2015, yeah, that's what it says. Yeah. Crazy. What a king. Lastly, during every break, Mark Ruffalo, I I said this, I I forgot, it's in my thing. During every break, Mark Ruffalo asked the real Michael Resendez to say his lines for him. I mentioned that a little earlier. earlier. I think my favorite is the third one. I kind of like how not only did they replicate the offices themselves – but they the, got it so well. They got it so well that the reporters and stuff just gravitated and went to their to their desks and ra- arranged all their items the way that they did. I thought that was so funny and so cool. It, it, again, yeah. it really shows that they did get the office almost perfect with everything. Yeah. It, oh. Because that is the one big set piece, obviously, in the film. Because everything else they pretty much captured in normal, you know, outside buildings and restaurants and whatever that probably needed very minimal reshuffling as far as do a table go here, does this go here, that sort of thing. Yeah, nothing too crazy. Nothing too crazy. That is all I have, TJ, uh, for Spotlight. Same. Perfect. What I am, again, good episode we we have I don't know if our we have this circadian rhythm or something, but we always seem to end the podcast at the one thirty mark, an hour thirty, hour thirty, hour thirty five, whatever. I don't know why it happens. It just does. I don't know either. It's it's magic. <laughs> it just it just happens. Yeah, as the great Ben Stiller says in Night of the Museum, magic. So, so. That's what that is. Oh, my God. 
Ah, I haven't seen that movie in forever. Dude, that movie is a jam. It's so fun. Do you know, you know what we're doing next episode? Uh, no. <laughs> I think, now this is just my opinion, we should do a David Lynch movie. I'm give down the, for give it. Give the people what they want, TJ. I'm here for it. <laughs> hey, we, we put the poll up on our Instagram, remember? I did, and I said, yo, should TJ and I discuss another David Lynch movie? It was all yeses. So I Ooh, think that only means one I'm thing. I'm here for it. I think that means only one thing, TJ. David Lynch movie. <laughs> Blue Velvet? I think it, uh, I think a Dune rewatch. Okay, I might just have to leave that podcast right now, actually. Um, no, no, no. Okay. Just end it there. <laughs> in all seriousness, in all seriousness, as much as Emerson hates that movie with a living passion, which I, I'll be honest, I mostly agree with, there are some moments that are very charming to me. That is some rewatchability value, weirdly enough. But I'm also, yeah, I, I'm also, or, go ahead. Oh yeah, I, I was just saying, I'm kind of excited to rewatch it. Because I mean, yeah. I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this partially could be because I'm a huge Kyle McLaughlin fan. But, you know, set aside that, and maybe that's not the case. Who knows? Obviously, Dune Part 1 is a banger. A thousand, you know, a hundred thousand million times better than David Lynch's movie. But there is some... It's it's a, considered a cult classic, so I won't hate on it from that perspective. Yeah. Anyway, that, that'll do it for us. Expect a David Lynch film next week. I will confirm... We will confirm what movie it is on our podcast... Or not on our podcast... On our Instagram, probably. I'm pulling for Blue Velvet, but maybe we'll do Green Velvet. I don't know. It's up to TJ. The elusive um, uh, sequel that we never knew about. Yes. Yes. The, well, I, have I said on the podcast my whole thing with my, my whole sequel, prequel ideas? Have I mentioned this on the podcast yet? Uh, no, you mentioned this uh, in Portland. Okay. We were on vacation. So for those that don't know, I'll, I'll end this shortly here. Or maybe I'll save a whole up. Or maybe I'll save a beginning of the episode for it next time. Do it. I'll do it. Okay, we'll talk about this at the beginning of the next episode of the Night Movie Misses podcast, where we talk about a David Lynch film. Crossing my fingers, it's Blue Velvet. But if T- if it's not Blue Velvet, it's all TJ's fault. So go to his Instagram, go to his direct messages, and just wail on him. If it's not <laughs> if it's not if it's not Blue Velvet. Okay. <laughs> for for John Phillips. And Trevor Chick, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Manic. TJ, oh, I, I, I don't know, you, you did it. Every I know, time I know, I know. I, I was trying to edge you on here. Oh, movie, Misfits <laughs> podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. See ya.